The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Let's pray. I'm going to read this passage here from earlier in the Gospel of Luke and see in it, in those words from Jesus, a depiction of discipleship that is wonderful and in many ways is, is a dream down the road from where we live. You described to these ones here in that boat, a few of the, the apostles, those who would become apostles, you described to them what you would make them to be fishers of men along with you, kind of in your train as you approach the world to save. So you call your church to, you call us disciples to that, and, and we, we see that and are in one sense excited by it and and filled with hope, and in other sense, we realize we, we aren't that and we fall short of it. And so please, Father, this morning, would you do a work here in this room? Would you do a work here that I want to ask you first, Father, would you, in this moment, send your spirit in some power here to this room to draw our attention to you and to stir our affections. There are a dozen things distracting me right now and probably others here. And I pray, Lord, that you would tamp those down and you would draw our hearts and our minds to you and that you would move us. That you would move us steadily, perhaps dramatically, but you would move us steadily as we move through this passage this morning to move us towards you, to open up our hearts towards you, to fasten us to you to follow. That's a work of God. That, that's, that's what you do. We need you to do that. We can't control our own attention spans. We can't control the temperature or the sound or the distractions around us. We look to you and say, please, Lord, shape all the environment around us. Draw our attention. And then, Lord, take this written page, these English words on paper, and make them live for us. For us. Make them live for us, that we would find life from you. And make them live for us, that we would find life from you, that you would be honored in our lives. And then beyond these doors, out there in the world, that you would be honored that your kingdom would be built up, that you would be exalted. This is a dream down the road for us, to be fishers of men, of women, with you. Please accomplish that dream. In some sense, I stand here empty-handed and hopeful, and in another sense, Lord, we all stand here knowing we have read the end. You do win. 
the kingdom does come, your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So while we stand praying in hope, we also know with great confidence that you're the king. So Lord, work this morning, reign this morning here and change us and build us up. Give clarity to my words. Spirit of God, would you reveal Christ and his call to us? Would you build up his people? Would you call in from the nations, those who are his but aren't yet home? Do a work this morning, God, we pray. For the good of us, your church, and for the glory of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Something about the volume is a little odd to me, if you can maybe adjust that. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 9, and once again consider the teaching from Jesus that's here on the nature of discipleship. That's been the topic for us in various ways throughout this chapter so far. We've seen disciples at work, disciples in action, sent out by Jesus to build up his kingdom, used by Jesus as he feeds the 5,000, as he feeds those who are hungry. He gives them power, certainly, but they're the ones called to do the work with him. He's been describing the nature of discipleship here. And then last week, he actually in words described the nature of discipleship. He taught us something in a paragraph. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, as Jesus states, a required commitment is, is outlined there for us, and it is, in a word, total. He calls us, says to anyone who's interested, if you want to be a follower, anyone who wants to follow me, come lay down everything, all of your all, at my feet, right in front of me, put it on the table, and then step away and let go of it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, leaving everything in his hands. It is, it is a high and a hard call. And he also wants to make equally clear it is a profoundly profitable proposition. The second thing we considered last week, after the command of verse 23, what follows then in a number of different ways, Jesus explaining profit trying to persuade us. He's reasoning with us and showing us this is actually, yes, it sounds hard, and yes, it is hard, but actually it is far and away in your best interest. It's how you find your life. It's how you gain profit, blessing. This is actually the path. This, this path of giving away everything is the path to getting everything. This path of death is the path to life. We intentionally lose our lives like this. We lay them down for Jesus' sake, for his kingdom, and that doesn't leave us empty, but in fact leaves us profoundly full. That's what he tells us, and we need to hear that because it's very hard to believe it. And we, we're putting everything out there. It feels like death. And he tells us, he, he encourages us, reminds us it's actually life. That was the whole passage considered last week, that whole paragraph. But we return to it again this morning because there's a specific piece there, one, one element there, that it would be easy to miss when we consider the whole thing. We consider it as a whole. There's a, a little piece there that is easily skipped. And so what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to go back particularly to verse 26 and kind of go in, 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 in. And so I'm not really dealing with the whole paragraph. I'm dealing with one part of it. 
Of course, it's informed by the whole paragraph, so I'm going I'm to read the whole thing here in a second to kind of reorient this. But it's really in, 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 in to see one piece of it that would be easy to miss. One piece of what Jesus calls us to and what that specifically means for us as Christians. So I'm going to work towards this one sub-piece, but let me read the whole paragraph, and then I'm going to make two observations focusing on verse 26. Here it is, beginning in verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's the whole passage, and then focusing on verse 26, two observations, here's the first one. Stated positively, disciples of Jesus are controlled willingly by his word. Disciples of Jesus are controlled willingly by his word. Coming out of verse 25, verse 26 is elaborating on how a person would lose or forfeit his life. And, and so, 26, as 25, it's expressed negatively. It's, it's a negative thing. He speaks about whoever is ashamed of me and my words. So we're talking about something negative, and, and our first kind of step in, we need to understand what exactly he's getting at here before we, we flip it and apply it to us. When he speaks about being ashamed of Jesus and his words, what's that about? Well, it's talking about an attitude or an internal disposition, something inside of us, toward Jesus and his words, his teaching. And so it would be legitimate, really, to apply this to all of the Bible, because while Jesus, if we consider the larger context of the Bible, while Jesus does teach us some things with his own mouth, that's kind of the, the red ink in your Gospels, he teaches us some things with his own mouth, he's also, if we recognize it, he's the, the teacher behind all teaching. He's, he's the king ruling his kingdom, who's expressing his will, expressing the, the ways of the kingdom, to us in every different way, sometimes through the mouth of a prophet in the Old Testament or through the, the pen of the Apostle Peter, for instance. So in one sense, it would be fair to say Jesus warns us against being ashamed of Jesus and of the Bible. That'd be fair. But in particular, what he means here, more tightly in this context, Jesus and his words would have a more narrow meaning. He would mean, it would mean we should think about the person of Jesus that's been revealed to us, that we've been seeing so far through this gospel, how he has been, what he has done, what he's, what he's modeled. We've seen a wide compassion on all kinds of people, great power and authority that he is using not to judge and destroy, but to redeem and to heal again and again and again, a willingness to do that an eagerness, in fact, an openness to receive people. That's Jesus. And then 
Jesus' teaching, his words. We've seen him teach many things, almost all of it somehow or another circling around the idea of kingdom. What the kingdom is, who the ruler of it is himself, how people come into the kingdom, and, and once particularly, once in the kingdom, what does kingdom life look like? What do disciples look like? That actually was, was kind of the heart of his main teaching so far in the Gospel of Luke, and, and really in all the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, that's kind of put as the pinnacle of Jesus' core teaching, this is what the kingdom looks like, kingdom people look like. So really, that's Jesus as revealed to us here in Luke, and his teaching revealed to us here in Luke, of which we are not to be ashamed, which we sort of have a grasp on when we hear the word. Think of shame and being ashamed, and that's not distant from us. We know, that we know the feeling of shame, being ashamed of something, kind of this, this inner negative humiliation, embarrassment, painful kind of shrinking back from something. So we have some idea about what it is, but that's not quite right on point what Jesus means. It means a little bit more than that which should be obvious when we keep reading the verse and see, he says, whoever is ashamed of me, well, then he uses the same word to describe what Jesus himself is going to be like when he comes back in his glory. He's going to have the same sort of response towards people, and when Jesus comes in his glory, he doesn't have this inner negative, shrinking, humiliated feeling. That doesn't fit. He's got something else kind of in view. What he's really getting at is more than just the feelings, but the general attitude or posture regarding shameful things. The person who is looking at or encountering something shameful has a posture or a, an attitude towards it that is one of separation. I want to avoid that. I want to not talk about that. I want to not think about that. I hope nobody else associates me with that. Denial, avoidance, rejection. Not embracing and celebrating and extolling and engaging with it, but rather this is to be shunned. This shameful thing, I'm ashamed of it, and so my attitude, my posture towards it is separation, shunning, rejection, avoiding. That's what Jesus has in mind here. So if we walk back through the verse, what we see is that Jesus says, I'm going to be Shunning, separating from, rejecting, avoiding people who themselves shunned and rejected, avoided, wanted nothing to do with me and my words. That's verse 26. Jesus in his words, clear avoidance of being ashamed. Okay, that's verse 26. Which now brings us to, kind of moving in, why we should consider it again this morning. Why, why we're back in this verse. That posture and that attitude negatively in the verse, we need to flip it around and see, oh, positively then, that has something to say to me. This posture, this attitude this negative, ashamed of Jesus and his words, it's not how a disciple regards Jesus and his words. On the contrary, flip it around, 
Disciples of Jesus are controlled, willingly so, by his word. It's easy to miss that when we just pass through this verse in this passage and think shame, strong negative feeling about Jesus, that's not me. Jesus judging when he comes, that's not me. So he's talking to somebody else. And never realize there's actually something here for us, for, for the church, for disciples. We are not people who are ashamed, but instead, flipping it around, we willingly and eagerly are controlled by his words. We are followers of Jesus in this sense. We set aside our own take on things and embrace, take on, not ashamed of, but embrace and take on, accept, receive his take on things, his goals in place of ours, his perspectives in place of ours, his agenda, what he's living for, in place of our agenda, what we're living for. That's what characterizes Jesus' followers. Trusting him and having sensitivity to his instruction to us. In any and every way that he teaches us. But specifically here, moving in another step now, specifically here, there's something in mind. Something in view here. Let me give you another side view of the sermon. Whole verse, ashamed word, Jesus. Applying generally to us as Christians that we receive his word and submit to it and come under what he says and teaches. And then now particularly, what is he teaching? Well, think back. What exactly has been the discipleship emphasis so far? Verse 5, chapter 5. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So catch men with me. Chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. What's at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount? The heart of Jesus' command to us, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you and hate you and oppose you. Be merciful to them and kind towards them, even those who are ungrateful like your father is. Then this chapter, go and proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. You feed them, you give them something to eat. I'm going to give you the power, yes, but you do it. The particular discipleship emphasis that we've been moving through Luke here is not on how husbands and wives should relate to one another. Now, anything about how husbands and wives should relate to each other in discipleship? Of course, sure, yeah, uh-huh. But that's not here. And he's talking to disciples and not exhorting them and teaching them on controlling their temper. Not about how to avoid lust or something like that. Other places in the Bible, absolutely, other places in the Bible, Jesus is going to teach us 
out of his own mouth or through the mouths and pens of his, of his teachers. He's going to teach us things about those topics, but not here. Here he's got a different, a, a particular discipleship emphasis. And what is it? It's following him into mission. Sent ones, as he is first the sent one. It's fishers of men, as he is first the head fisher. It's feeders of people, as he is first the feeder. It's healers of people, as he is first the healer. Follow me. I'm going out there into the world to seek and to save the lost. Come with me. Come with me. Come with me. That's the, the core. That's the, the thing that he's calling disciples to so far in Luke up to this point. Such that if you miss that and follow him in all the other stuff about how to relate to your, your spouse or how to deal with lust or, or anger or whatnot, if, but if you miss this, you've, you've missed the core of what he's saying about die to yourself, lay down your own life, and follow me into mine. You miss, you miss this core thing, you miss the heart of it. When he says, don't be ashamed of me and my words, we need to realize disciples willingly come under the control of his words, and in particular, his word to us right here in this context is about mission. So far in Luke. It's not the only thing, but it's the thing right now. Don't be ashamed of, don't reject and avoid this. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Indeed, bank on it. Someone on the Mount banks on it. Indeed, you will be opposed and you will be persecuted and you will be hated on account of my name. Or as he says here, for my sake. Count on it. But don't shrink back from that and don't try to avoid it and shun it, but instead embrace it and own it. So, do you? I kind of want to pause right here and just say, it's not a lot more complicated than that. I've tried to kind of come in a little bit and say, there's something big that applies negatively, then something that applies positively, then something that applies positively on a specific, but here at the very end, it's just a, do you? Are you willingly controlled by Jesus and his words, particularly his call to us to lay aside our kingdom to come with him and build his? Think that through. Think it through. Are you, just ask yourself, are you thinking about and living and looking, praying, Lord, how can I catch people with you? Are you living and looking and praying, Lord, how can I be a lover of those who are my opponents for your sake? How can I do good to 
That's, that's active. How can I, not just, not just respond positively, but how can I do good to those who don't like you or me because of you? Are you looking and living and praying, Lord, where am I sent? Wherever you are, you're sent there. How am I sent here for these ones to speak to them of the kingdom? How, Lord, can I feed these ones? Is that, is that actively on your mind? Are you intentionally befriending non-believers? It kind of has to start there. Intentionally befriending non-believers. Think this through. When he says do good to them and to love them, that's not just reactive if, if they happen to come at you, but it's to seek out and love and do good to and give yourself away to for his sake. Are you seeking out non-believers at school? I'll say a couple of categories. If you're in that category, think. Who are the non-believers in my class? Do I avoid them or pursue them? At work, who are your workmates? Who's in the next cubicle? In your family, your neighborhood, your neighbor, your exercise class, your hobbies, your sports team, People who don't know Jesus and haven't been set free by him. Jesus has been sent to seek them ones out. And he says to us, follow me. And if we could physically see, he's walking this road. He says, follow me, come. You've got to follow him in that journey. On that path. That's specifically what he means here. There are people in your exercise class and in your workplace and on your sports team that don't know me. Some of them are mean. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them are, are, are hopelessly distraught and some of them are, are having a great time and are, are just delighted in life. But they don't know me and I'm after them. Are you? Are you? Are you after them? Actively seeking to befriend them and praying for, Lord, how am I sent to? How can I help? How can I reach this? How can I connect to this person here? Is that you? Or, in every one of those places, is your life, if you're honest, more filled with, maybe completely filled, filled with, your own agenda people that kind of feed you and satisfy you or with, with Christians exclusively and only Christians think that through for your, your particular settings disciples of Jesus willingly are controlled by his word we come under it we are not ashamed of it and try to get away from it and in particular what I'm what I'm trying to press home here is that in particular, what he has been expressing to us, modeled in his life and 
spoken in his words is, I'm after other people. Come with me. And we can't say, disciples don't say, no, I want to follow you into something else. That option's not there. Disciples hear his command, hear what he expects us to do, are willingly controlled by it, and move towards it in obedience. And notice something. I'm going to take this one step further still. There is indeed law and requirement and must, have to, in what I'm saying there. His commands are commands. That's what he calls us to as individual Christians and as a church. So there is law there. There is have to there. As I've said in a a few settings, though, and and hear this and, and then keep hearing it. I need to explain it. We have to be people who pick up the Bible and read it looking for the law not trying to avoid it. So to put it in a different way, older Christians used to say, read your Bible with a law orientation, but not with legalism. Do you understand that critical difference? Read your Bible with a law orientation, but not with legalism. Law orientation is good and required, That's how we know what God requires of us. We wouldn't know what the commands of Jesus are if we didn't look and say, what do you want? What do you say? We we have to read it with an orientation towards this is what he requires. That's good and that's fine. We accept it, we read it, we own it, but the critical balance is but not legalistic, which means we take seriously what he requires, we seek to obey it, but we do not We do not pursue what he requires. We do not pursue it believing that how well we do at it determines our acceptance before God. If I do well, I'm highly accepted. If I do poorly, I'm I'm, maybe not accepted. No. And we do not pursue what he requires attempting to do it all in our own power. There's there's the great difference there. We we read the Bible, we see what he requires, and we face it honestly, but we do not, we do not approach it believing that my acceptance before God is determined on how well I do, and I better do it in my own power. No. We're never going to get it done in our own power. And if his acceptance of us was based on how well we do, we would be unaccepted. But this is the glorious freedom in the gospel. We read the the Bible law-oriented and gospel-believing. The glorious freedom in the gospel in the face of the law is that here's what he requires, and my acceptance is not based on how well I do with that. I am owned, I am accepted by him, bless God. And here's what he requires, and my obedience to it does not come from my own strength, but comes from his spirit working in me to move me to follow his decrees. A gospel privilege, one for me, that moves me after it. Believing the gospel, then, we can say, I read the law, and I'm not not afraid of it. I I don't run from it, I don't shun it, I'm not ashamed of his words. 
but instead I embrace it and say, what do you want? That's what I want to do. Thank you for forgiving me for my failure. Help me to do it. Because I see I am a disciple of yours, and I am not ashamed of those words. I want to follow them. You are out on mission in this world after people. Take me, please. Help. I'm not much help, but if you help me, I'll be a help. That's the Christian's posture. So we read this saying, what do you require? What is your word to me? And believing the gospel, we say, thank goodness that I stand accepted completely and fully, and thank goodness that you will empower me. Now what? Follow you? Fish and catch? Okay, great. That is... This is good news. This is Christian. This is good news because if you believe the gospel, his word, his law to us does not become burdensome. It does not become something to fear. And in fact, this, is, this opens up to you the best life possible because there is nothing like, there's no life here and now like following Jesus into his purposes. And you can. You can. You don't stand condemned and you don't stand powerless. The gospel has accepted you and the gospel empowers you to do this, to follow him. So work it now backwards. You believe the gospel. You read the Bible law-oriented. You see he requires you to follow him to mission. You say, yes. So let's say yes. Let's say yes happily and heartily and readily. You'll find your life if you do. The rest of the passage. You'll find your life if you do. You actually were not made to live like this. We die when we live like this. We grow we thrive when we live like this. We live like, like rivers with water running through us rather than like dead seas with water pooling up in us. You'll find your life if you follow him into this. But if we're going to do that, there is another particular piece of hope that is helpful one particular way that the Spirit moves us to follow his decrees is by reminding us of something very important. Because if we're not, if, if we're going to walk through life unashamed of Jesus and his commands, his instructions to us, one thing is certain, you're going to bump into other people who disagree. Right? And sometimes that'll be just fine, and sometimes that'll be extremely uncomfortable. And one of the things that God, by his Spirit, does in us to help us reckon with, face, and rise above that extremely uncomfortable is to remind us of coming glory and honor. Part of that extremely uncomfortable is ridicule and shame. 
And God, by his spirit, balances that out with honor. Which brings us to the second point. Which should be help to us. The hope of coming glory encourages those who suffer because of Jesus and his word. First point is about willingly coming under and following Jesus and his word. Second point, the hope of coming glory encourages those who suffer because of Jesus and his word. Still in verse 26, taking the negative and flipping it over to the positive. And he says in, in warning, those who are ashamed of Jesus and his words, well, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, with the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That is a terrible reality. That's a terrible reality. And it is all the more terrible when it becomes vivid, at least in my mind, when it becomes vivid as I read the Old Testament passage alluded to here. If you just take the phrase, son of man, what you have is a phrase that is intended to be humble. It's, it's you might say, another way of saying, a person. Somebody who looks like a man, looks like a person. And if you only read that and you say, well, to be rejected by a person, by a son of man, that's no big deal. But when you put together son of man and coming in glory, you have a clear reference to a passage that is an awesome passage. One referred to here, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You can jot that down and look at it later. But back in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision and in that vision, he sees, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's the illusion here. One like a human, in other words. And he came in Daniel. He came not to earth. If you know the passage, he came to the ancient of days. He's coming on the clouds to heaven. He comes and he approaches the ancient of days and was presented before him. And what happens? And to this one, this one who comes, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion, this this kingdom, he is enthroned on this dominion and it is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and it is a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So we have to, to move ourselves beyond just this room, beyond just our thoughts about the office place or the class or the team. We have to move ourselves to this place that Daniel is is lifting up our eyes to see. It is the throne room of heaven 
where one like a son of man, where Jesus the man is carried into the presence of God and is given dominion over everything forever. Jesus comes into heaven. When did that happen? After the ascension. The ascension. And when did that happen? After the resurrection. When did that happen? After the cross. He is raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven and he is seated at the right hand, reigning right now. Now we read more. We know more. We know that he's going to come back and reign in a different way over this earth. So we read ahead and we can picture the day when he will come in glory and he will stand with his feet on the earth and he will reign here. But what Jesus is speaking of right now when he alludes to Daniel is something else that he talks about at the end of Matthew when he says, I have been given all authority and I'm with you. Go and make disciples of all the nations. This has already happened. The Son of Man has already come into heaven, been presented before the Ancient of Days, been given a dominion. He already is seated on the throne. He already reigns in glory over every single thing going on, over every single one of us, over every office place and every sports team and every hobby and every exercise class and every person. He reigns. And when you speak of him and are shamed, he stands behind you and says, Honor. I have been given all authority, and I am with you, and I am the king. Right now. Right now. Not even in the future. Indeed, in the future. But even right now, he reigns, and he reigns in majesty before all of the angelic host. In all of their glory, he reigns. And he reigns with and for you in your exercise class, and at your workplace, and in your classroom, and on your sports team. One of the ways that the Spirit of God moves us to follow Jesus in giving away our lives is to remind you very vividly, I hope very vividly, that this is the case now. You can't see it, but it is the case right now. He reigns. And he even in this moment looks upon you, following him in his word, not ashamed, and says, well done, good and faithful servant, even right now. Even now. They don't say that to you. But can you hear him? He does. And then when he comes in glory, the angel said, as he went, he will come. He will come again here to the earth in the clouds and every eye shall see him and some will be shamed. But not you. Oh, that's good to know. No. Come on. You can't live the Christian life if you don't think and see. When he comes, every eye shall see him, and some shall be shamed, but not you. 
but not you who said to him, here's my life, I take up my cross daily and follow you. And I was crucified daily, it felt like. We, you, we who followed him into the path in which he suffered, into the path in which he was rejected, into the path in which he took up a cross and died. We followed him through all of that. We also now follow him in, but he was raised, and he is now in glory, and so will you be when he comes for you. This, the Spirit of God must... Oh, Spirit, would you please? The Spirit of God must take this and move it out of, out of words and, and theory into perceived reality, that you would see it. This, I don't think there is, and if there is, I don't know what it is. I don't think there is any better remedy to the shame that comes from people against us than to counter that with, indeed, that is shame, that hurts me, you are attempting to hurt me, and it, you, you did it. But to bring into that and set right alongside of it, but the honor and the glory of the Lord bestowed on me as I walk with him, frankly, that overdoes the shame that you've inflicted on me. I don't think there's anything else. I don't think there's anything better than that. And if you don't bring that to the table also you will collapse under the weight of a world that doesn't like you. So he tells you. So he tells you, I will come, I will get you, and you will reign with me in honor. The Lord bestows favor and honor on you. The world doesn't. He does. May the Spirit of God take that and bring it into your mind and cause it to run through you in ways that are real and that are alive that match up quite nicely against the, the attack of the world that attempts to tear you down. It is, it is honor for shame. It is exaltation for degradation. It comes from the Lord who reigns even now and one day will stand on the earth and reign in glory. This is reality. Honored because you as disciples, we his disciples, we're not ashamed of him. We did not shrink back from him. We instead laid down our lives to follow him. We denied ourselves, took up his agenda, and walked with him into it. Do that. That's, that's what's required of you. Do that, believing the gospel and believing that he will empower you even in the moments when you have no idea what to say. I think, and I can't say it any stronger than that, I think, that this is a hole in our church. And if, and if it's not a hole in your life, then maybe it doesn't feel like that. I, I think like big picture corporately, maybe not this one, this one, this one, but big picture, I think this is a hole in our church. 
that we do not deliberately and aggressively enough follow Jesus and his words in this particular way. So what I'm trying to do this morning is draw out of this verse the need for us to not be ashamed of, but to embrace his word, the recognition that his word in particular in this context is about following him into mission. So to hold up in front of you that that's what we're supposed to do, and then to say, and really, 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 it is profoundly profitable to you. God doesn't throw you out there all on your own. He comes with you, and he promises to to look on you in favor even now and one day to bestow on you great favor, great honor. So brothers and sisters, church, maybe we pursue first repentance and then then prayerful asking, Lord, would you fill in this hole? If, If in fact this is a hole for us, would you begin to fill it in? with an assurance of your honor, an assurance of your supporting power, an assurance of your acceptance, and a clarity on what we're to be about. Would you begin to fill in that hole for us? Would we repent and maybe we pray? I'm going to repent and pray afterwards right here in front if you want to join me. And if you don't, that is totally fine. That is totally fine. I'm, I am not in any way going to look down on you if you don't. If you, if you got somewhere else to go, wonderful. There's three of us prayer here, wonderful. But I'm going to pray afterwards in front of you. Join me if you want to. Pray on your own if you want to. But may God, if in fact this is a hole for us, may God fill in the hole and move us to follow him in this particular way, to become fishers of men and women. Let me pray. Lord, have your way with us. The the heart of this passage, the whole passage, is about a denial of self and a taking up our cross daily to follow you. So we wouldn't be a people who put everything on the table in front of you and say, here, I'm yours, all of me is yours. Do as you wish with me. We want to be a people like that and we're terrified to be a people like that at the same time. So we admit that and we confess it to you and say that we're sorry. We, we want to be different than that. We want to repent of that and pray that you would move in us to change us wherever and however each individual one of us needs growth and change. So please forgive and please change and grow us individually, corporately. And would you do so in particular, Father, by pressing home to us your great pleasure with us as your people. Gospel acceptance is a sweet thing. Would you press home to us and remind us 
that over every one of your disciples, you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And would you then move us to be more faithful, more faithful, more faithful. We need your help. So Spirit of God, please work in us and build our church. Would you hallow the Father's name through us? Would you bring in the King's kingdom in part through us? Would you cause his will to be done among us and in part through us? Would you give us our daily bread that we'll need along the way? And would you lead us away from temptation and protect us from the attack of the evil one? Your kingdom and your power is most important. Thank you for promising to bring it to pass. We're going to give ourselves to you, Lord, and pray. Use us. Build your church. Build your people. Call in more. Honor the name of the Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.